The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, I uh, have a couple of quick announcements. If you would grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians, if you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high and we will make sure you get one. If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift. Um, but we want to make sure that you have the ability to kind of track along with us so that you know this isn't just me saying this stuff. We need to know that this comes from the Word of God. Because here at Heritage, we believe in the authority and the veracity and the truth of the Scriptures. We believe that the Scriptures, the Word of God, is that which gives us the keys to everything that we need in life, both here and thereafter, which is a heavy part of what we're going to talk about today. If you couldn't tell based on even the songs that Sam chose this week, we're going to be talking about what happens after death today. So it's a little weird to come in after all that, eh, fly away, and then, so what, do you, what happens after we die? So I'll try to keep it from being too somber, but... Um, we are going to be talking about that today, so if you don't have a Bible, it's still kind of dark as the lights are coming on, so stick your hand up nice and high. They'll make sure you get one if you don't. A couple of quick announcements, really easy ones. Um, first of all, we are looking at doing a Uganda mission trip in February, and so if you are here and you are a medical professional in particular, and you would be interested in maybe coming along and donating, if you will, some of your services um, to be able to do some medical outreach and clinic work while we are there in Uganda, we would love to talk to you. So in particular, medical professionals that uh, would like to experience um, mission work in Uganda with us, I would love to have a conversation with you. So if you could get a hold of me by email, my email is jeff at heritagefellowship.net, um, or you can call the church office during the week, something like that, but definitely get a hold of me. I would love to talk with you. Um, and then the other thing that if, if you are here, we would love to have someone that, that is skilled in video production and making videos. We, we, we could really use your help. So if you're one of those that can put together those videos that go up on YouTube, and I mean the good ones, not the cheesy ones, the good ones, um, we would love, if you're like, man, I, I know how to do this, I'm looking for an opportunity to use what the Lord's blessed me with to be able to serve him, man, we have need of you. So um, if you would get a hold of us, we would love to talk to you about that as well. In the meantime, today, we are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to start in verse 1, because it's first. And we're going to go through verse 10. So I'm going to read that, and then we're going to pray, and then we'll dig in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 says this. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may be found not naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." Father, we bow before you and pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in this place, that you would be our teacher, that we would be submitted to your scriptures, that we would discover the will of God, not the thoughts and inventions of men, and that you would equip your people that we might exalt you as we leave this place today. So, Lord, as always, we do pray in accordance with your scriptures. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. O our King and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. For as much as it hath pleased the Almighty God of his great mercy to receive unto himself the dear soul of our brother here departed, we now commit his body to the ground, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. 
in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our earthly body that it may be like unto his glorious body, according to the mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things to himself. These are commonly used words of committal, spoken at funerals throughout the ages, talking about the fact and if you will, uh, reminding the people, the gospel minister speaks these words about the fact of both the death of our bodies, the life that is to come, and the resurrection of our bodies that is also there. But in our age, in our current day, many believers in churches as well, but people especially, are continually uh, confused with regards to what happens after we die, or maybe even afraid or leery with regards to these things. But the church, for example, all over the place right now, there are, con- there, are, there are actual magazines and resources and conferences focused on how is the church or how can the church become or be more relevant to the world around us. But the one area we don't spend much time talking about that isn't conversed or emphasized very much is that with regards to death. And when you think about it, what could be more relevant? Because everyone's going to die. I mean, should the Lord tarry, unless his return should preempt that, Everyone is going to die. And so it's an important and very much relevant topic. And our understanding of what happens with regards to death and what happens to us after that, what could be more relevant than that? But in many areas, death and dying are simply another area that the church has, in a lot of ways, kind of capitulated over to the world around us. Um, There's some different examples that will help you understand how that is. Um, For example, years ago, most of you remember this, churches used to always be built with what right outside? Cemeteries. You remember that? Churches always had cemeteries out back. How many churches have you seen built in the last 20, even 30 years that had cemeteries attached to them? Not many. Now, the cemeteries were attached to the churches for a reason. It was important because it was believed that only the church has the answers to what exists after our death here on earth. And it was this committal to the family of God buried together that would then raise together in accordance to the scriptures. The cemeteries were attached to the church on purpose and intentional. We don't see this very much anymore. Bell towers are the same. You don't see a lot of churches with bell towers anymore, do you? And a lot of bell towers, especially in our culture, we remember them. I can remember growing up, and my cousin lived out in this country town, and he had a church down at the end of this long gravel road, and every Sunday morning they would ring the bell, and that's how everybody knew, and it was a neighborhood church. It was very much like a Norman Rockwell painting or something. You would walk out, and you'd see everybody walking down the dirt road to go to the church, but a lot of the bells were originally put into churches with regards to funerals, actually, not so much just to announce when church begins. Um, you see this reflected in Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Macbeth where he says, I go and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. But in our culture actually now, and you can look these things up online, first of all, most churches aren't built with bell towers anymore. And then those that are are even restricted in many cases by the local communities around them on when they can and cannot ring those things. Maybe it's just a little reminder for everyone, believer or not, that the bell rings for us all at some point. Today, funeral is a bad word. We have memorials because God forbid we think anyone died. So we call them memorial services. And they tend to be celebrations, and I understand the sentiment with that. We do want to celebrate the life that's been given us. We want to be able to celebrate the time spent with the person that that we love so much, and even celebrate, especially if it is a believer, we want to be able to celebrate the fact that they've gone now to be healed permanently and to live before God. But what could be cause for more solemnness and sadness than a funeral? I mean, the biblical examples of funerals are always solemn are always sorrowful. Our own Savior himself even wept at the death and at the tomb of one of his dear friends. Because funerals should be a reminder of the fact that this is not what God designed. That we've been created for something more than this and that this end that has come upon us right now is a result of something that God never intended that we be a part of, but also something that we will be eternally rescued and saved from. Instead of grieving, we have viewings. And rarely do we bury anymore. And I don't mean like the debate about can we be scattered or any of those sorts of things. But I can tell you this. I've done lots of funerals slash memorial services. I can't think of any 
that I've done that I stood at the side where the casket was, maybe one, but I'm not even sure, where the casket was actually lowered in the ground as part of the ceremony. Um, and many people will tell you that that's, that can be traumatic. And so in many cases, what they'll do, even if you do have a graveside service, maybe the casket will be on those straps above the hole. Everything's cleaned up. You don't want to see the dirt. So the carpet gets laid around there because we don't want to face the reality that grandma's going to be six feet underground and we're never going to see her again. And so people tend to turn and walk away long before that casket ever gets lowered into the ground. Because we don't like dealing with that. We don't want to think about that. I've seen stories regarding different communities, especially maybe the Mennonite community and the Amish community, about how they handle those very differently. And I think we have something to learn from them. In the Mennonite community, for example, in many places, the casket is not only lowered in a grave, but it is the brothers of the, pe- the, the church family that comes around with those shovels and they begin to actually cover the casket themselves. And while the casket is being covered by the dirt, the songs begin. Low in the grave he laid, Jesus my Savior. Waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. But up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain and now he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. That sounds like a good funeral. An emotional thing, a difficult thing, but maybe an important thing for us to understand. Now, our culture wants to push away from these things. There's a lot of confusion. What happens after we die? How does this work? But uh, Richard Baxter famously said this, it is the gospel minister's primary responsibility to prepare people for death. The primary responsibility of the gospel minister is to prepare people for death. So the question then becomes, what happens after we die? It's an important question to understand, is it not? Now, it's a scary one. We're always scared by things that we don't really understand. And the Bible doesn't give us every little detail to how things play out after we pass from this place. And so it's understandable that we would be afraid of some of that kind of stuff. I mean, for goodness sakes, even birth, if we were somehow able to understand what was about to happen, it would freak us out a little bit, wouldn't it? Here's what's going to happen, man. We're going to put you inside this woman's stomach for nine months. You're going to live inside a tight sack of water. At a certain point, everything is going to close down on you. The water's going to drain. You're going to go down a chute, and a stranger's going to grab you, slap you on the butt. Welcome to life. No, thank you. I'm out. I'll skip that, right? So maybe it's better that we don't know some of the details of how things play out. But yet, the scriptures do say that the Lord will keep you from your going out and your coming in. So if we can handle the first one, maybe we can handle the second part too as well. But this text before us right here goes a long way towards addressing this understanding and this mystery of what happens to us after we die. Now, there's still much mystery around it. There's a lot of speculation that people draw even from these texts. There's fertile ground for debate we'll talk about in just a moment. And the last few weeks have been very heavy messages here. So I am purposing to the best of my ability by the grace of God to avoid those debates, to not drag you through the history of arguments between different parties. And what I want to do is look at this particular passage, verses 1 through 10, here in 2 Corinthians, and boil it down to two things that we can take away from it. And I've come up with some nice, cheesy little taglines that we can remember. The first is this. In verses 1 through 5, we're going to look at what we know about where we go. All right, everybody say that with me. What we know about where we go. Then, in verses 6 through 10, we're going to look at what we do because we know it's true. Say it with me. What we do because we know it's true. So let's look first at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5 is what we're going to look at first. What we know about where we go. It is important often to come back to the things that we know. That's a really important thing for us as a church overall and always to make sure we're constantly coming back to what is it that we know. There's a lot of time that can get spent on different things. For example, we can spend a ton of time talking about what we think. 
So passages like this, for example, what happens after we die? Oh, there are debates all over the world about what we think is going to happen, and people can argue and speculate and go back and forth. Christian blogging, even Sunday preaching, can camp here way too much, thinking about different schools of thought, that which is really speculatory in nature at best. But in the end, it leaves us with nothing concrete to hold on to. And so while there is place for speculation, even healthy debate among believers, we need to always come back to the things that, what is it that we know? What are the truth of Scripture that we can hold on to the tightest? In this passage in particular, there are plenty of them. We'll try to avoid those sorts of debates and stick with what we know because those are the things that we have foundation that we can cling to. When things like death come knocking at our door, it's not the debates you want to hear about when you're laying on your hospital bed. It's the truths of Scripture that carry us. Amen? So we want to know that. Also, too much time can get spent exploring how we feel. What, how do we feel about things? What is it we think, and then how do we feel about things? And there, there was an analogy, a story that I wanted to tell you guys that, that uh, Alistair Begg spoke not long ago at an actual pastor's conference. And I was going to relate that to you, but I thought, you know what's way better is hearing him say it in a Scottish accent. He's way better than me. So I, gotta, I want you guys to watch this really short video, and Verse then we'll talk about it after. Five, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. We know, we know. The Christian faith engages our minds. This is something that we have to keep reminding ourselves of so that we don't allow our minds to fossilize and that we continue to be sharpened and to make progress. I was at a church in California just a few weeks ago now, back in August, I think it was, time flies, and I went there. I had a Sunday free, and I was staying with friends, and I went down to the church, and I was excited because I get to go now, and I don't have to do anything at all except do whatever they tell me to do. And so I sat there, and I waited for it to begin. And it was quite fascinating, actually. They had big screens, and they had a clock on the screens, and when I got in, it said five minutes, and I'd only been in about two seconds, and you won't be surprised, it said four minutes and 58 seconds. And uh, then it counted down, and eventually when it counted down, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, and just right on the moment of time, the band began, and, and I was waiting for David Letterman at that point. Anybody, I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know what was going to happen next. And then, and then eventually the band did what it did, and then the, the person who was to lead the, the praise, his opening gambit, was this. Hey, how do you all feel this morning? Well, that was enough for me. I was ready. We could have had the benediction right there. That was so good. (laughs) I thought, what kind of New Testament question is that? How do you all feel this morning? If I told you how I feel, especially in light of the last five minutes, you would question whether I was even a Christian at all. So don't ask me that question. Ask me what I know. Ask me what I know. Don't ask me what I feel about myself. Ask me what I know about God. Ask me what I know about His Word. Ask me what I know to be a verity that can deal with my soul. That's what I need. Don't make me sing songs about how I feel. Don't. The silly, repetitive songs again and again. I just want to praise you. Lift my hands and say I love you. You are everything to me. Goodness, at half past eight on a Sunday morning, I'm barely ambulatory. I can't start there. And you want me to say that? I just kicked the dog, and I don't even have a dog. I, I, I got argued with someone because they took my parking space. I never had spilled my coffee. I didn't read my Bible. I'm a miserable wretch. And now you want me to start here. How do you feel? I feel rotten. That's how I feel. What do you got for me? The answer, nothing. I got nothing for you. That's why you have to get yourself under the control of the Scriptures. That's why it is what we know, the verities of the Scriptures, which then fuel our hearts and our emotions and lead us on. Hence, praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. Ransomed, healed, Restored, 
forgiven. Who like thee his praise should sing? Okay, now we've got something to sing about. For we've been reminded of truth. You've been ransomed. You've been healed. You've been restored. You've been forgiven. You're looking away from yourself. Now you're looking out unto Christ. And it is in this that we have something that fuels our praise. Amen. <clears throat> Everything's better with a Scottish accent, though, in all fairness. Now, let's, let's do a little disclaimer before we go too far. First of all, I should let you know, Alistair Begg's closest friend in this world is Fernando Ortega, who's written a lot of worship songs about emotion and love and feeling. So don't take that too far. He wouldn't himself. The, the Psalms themselves are full of songs that address the emotions and the things that God's word affects us, the realities of scripture, the understanding of who God is. It's desired that we would have an emotional effect. God is the creator of our emotions, but it is the truths of scripture and what we know about God that should drive and determine how we feel. Too often people want to take what they feel about things and then adjust the scriptures or do away with certain truths because they don't like how that makes us feel. And how death is addressed in the scriptures can come across the same way. And so next time song, uh, Sam comes up and does a song that has any mention towards emotion, don't go, hey, beg said. Just understand, first of all, we are blessed to have Sam. If you guys could see the time put into, thank you, I Absolutely. <clears throat> As you may have noticed, this week, week in and week out, he takes even the text that we're going to be looking at and studies it and prays about it and even looks for songs that are complementing the truths of God's word. So it's not that a song, a new song is evil. No, that's not the truth whatsoever. But the understanding is that truth must drive the emotions. So if we start with how we feel, it's dangerous ground. If we start with what we think, well, we don't always think things rightly. But coming back to what we know is what's important. And here, Paul says in verse 1, We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We know that though our bodies may be failing, and they are, we know that God has better for us in store. In fact, the way Paul describes it, he says our bodies now are like tents, and that which God has for us in the future is like an eternal heavenly dwelling. And I don't need to ask too much about how you guys feel about tents, because if you actually liked them, it's Labor Day weekend, you'd probably be in one right now. So I'm assuming this is our tent-hating crowd right here. I also know that because this year when we announced, hey, family camp, we're gonna be rafting, we're gonna do this stuff, you guys are like, yeah, and it's all tent camping. I'm out. That's what most people are like, I don't want to know tent camping. We don't like tents. It doesn't, t I mean, tent camping's fun, even for those of us that do, but at a certain point after a while, don't you start to long for the comforts of home? Don't you begin to, to grow weary of the mildew or the wrinkles or the spiders or the mosquitoes or it's too hot or it's too cold or don't touch the sides. Remember that when you were young? Don't touch the tent. It'll get all wet in here. All of those things. Hey, at a certain point, no matter how much you love it, don't you start to long for the comforts, the solidarity, the, the, the enduring truth of home? That's what Paul's talking about here. That right now we are a shadow of what we will one day be. That we are like tents, mildew, wrinkled, yes. Guy in the hospital once said, you know, as I've gotten older, I've got a furniture problem. Furniture problem? What are you talking about? Well, it's my chest. It's falling down into my drawers. <laughs> no more medicine. No more medicine for him. But it's true. Our bodies are failing. 
And Paul even talks about this, that he says we groan. He says it two times in this passage. He says it three times in Romans 8, which is really a parallel passage for this particular text, that we groan. Now, it doesn't mean we just mope around like a bunch of Eeyores. Oh, life stinks. I hate life. That's not what it means. It's not about whining or any of these things. What he's talking about is being realistic about the death and decay and difficulty and strain around us, but being drawn to and focusing on an eternal reality that's coming. It's more like a woman who is in labor when she's in her ninth month and she's groaning. I'm I'm weary of the discomfort. I'm weary of the pain. I'm weary of the stress. But I am longing for what's on the other end of this thing. And that too is how we are. We are tired and we are exhausted by the limitations of our bodies, the failures of our bodies, the failures of our ability to live in such a way that honors God and succeeding and then failing again. And it exhausts us. And so we groan for the reality that is ahead of us. And Paul says, oh, it's going to be amazing. It's real. And it's something we know. In fact, he actually says, he says he's so certain about it, he phrases it as if it's something we already have. That we've already been given possession. That our, though our eternal home is destroyed, verse 1, we have a building from God. We have this. It is as certain as if it's the house you're going home to after church today. And he also says that the Spirit of God has been given to us as a guarantee. Not a down payment that you might default on later. We'll see if it comes through. But an absolute guarantee. Just as much as you know as the Spirit of God is with you that we know that we are destined for better things than this. Those of us who have our faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? There is better coming. So we can groan. Ah, my knee. Ah, unemployment. Oh, cancer, war, racism, the strife that we see in the world around us, but we groan because we are longing for something better that is an absolute guarantee to us in Scripture. That's what we know about where we go. Amen? We can disagree on how, we can disagree on when, we can disagree on what happens before what, but we know that God has prepared a heavenly dwelling for every one of us who have put our faith in him. That's what we know about where we go. Well, now what do we do? Because we know this is true. Our future, our understanding, our focus of what's to come affects the way we live. So I used to live in North Carolina. You guys know that. It's hurricane season right now in North Carolina, and I have been through a couple of hurricanes. And I can tell you Your knowledge about the approach of a hurricane affects the way you live when you're in those places. I can remember um, my wife and I in 1997, I believe it was, Hurricane Fran came through. It was unbelievable, the storm. It was 100 mile an hour sustained winds. That means the wind is constantly without stop blowing at 100 miles an hour. And then it would gust up to 175, the gusts. And it was at nighttime And one of the more dangerous things about hurricanes is they spit tornadoes out. With that kind of wind going on, there's tornadoes everywhere. A lot of the damage is actually caused by tornadoes. And when you grow up, you guys don't learn this so much here, but when you grow up in places that have that, we had tornado drills as a kid where you'd have to go outside the building and get down in a ditch, which I always thought was just weird. If it's picking up mobile homes, what chance do I have as a third grader in a ditch? I'll take my chance in the building if it's okay with you guys, but that's what they did. We'd go outside, all this stuff, and, and 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 they would tell you if it's at nighttime, you can't see it. But here's how you know it sounds like a, anyone know? Like a train. When the wind is 100 mile an hour constant, gusting to 175, everything sounds like a train. I remember my wife and I laying in bed just freaking out. We even slept in the guest room because our bedroom window had cracked and we, were just, we just knew that was going to bust in. And we were stressing like crazy this storm in this dinky little apartment. And we're like, oh, train, what do we do? Oh, there's another one. And, we just, and finally at a certain point we just got exhausted. We're like, we might as well just go to sleep. It's not like we can go anywhere anyway. Went right to sleep, slept right through the whole thing. But here's the interesting thing. When the storms are coming, especially if you've been through them before, And so you know what to expect. You know what it's going to be like. The night before or the day before that storm comes, grocery stores get hammered with people and everything gets bought. 
I mean, you, you can't even imagine everything. You go in any grocery store, no matter how full it is before, and the shelves are empty. Because people know there's a storm coming. The power's going to be out. There's going to be issues. I don't know how long I'm going to have power. So people go in there. They're buying batteries. They're buying bread. They're buying ice. They're buying milk. They're buying anything that they can because they know there's a storm coming, and I've got to be ready to get hunkered down and deal with this thing. So too should we. Another example of this is, is the nation of Spain years ago, centuries ago, when Spain had at that time uh, conquest or conquered, I should say, all of the known world at that time. From the Straits of Gibraltar, both sides of the Mediterranean, they had kind of conquered all of the known world at that time. And they were so excited about that and so proud of their accomplishment as a nation that they put coins out and they put a, a, a slogan, a motto on the bottom of the coin. It was ne plus ultra. Ne plus ultra. It means no more beyond. We've found it all. We've conquered it all. There is no more beyond. And that was awesome. Proud. That's a great slogan. We conquered it all. Until 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So now there's a problem. Uh Uh-oh. We found other things out there. And to her credit, Spain was humble decided to just strike the nay from nay plus ultra, and their new motto was plus ultra, more beyond. Let me ask you, which one would be your motto? Now, that motto and that understanding that there was even more beyond the boundaries they had before changed everything for them. It affected really a cultural revolution worldwide. It affected geopolitical trade. It affected um, wars, global economy. There were all sorts of implications based on the reality that there is more out there beyond our borders. And so to us as believers, would our motto be, nay plus ultra, there's no more beyond, this is it, or plus ultra, more beyond. Well, listen to what Paul says in verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul exhorts us to walk in this life now based on what we know is coming. He says we walk by faith, not sight. We don't get bogged down and make our ultimate focus the things that we see around us, things that are temporary, things that Jesus himself said, those are the things that moth and rust corrupts, not to make that your treasure, your focus in life, but we walk by faith. We believe in something that is to come. And he says, and I find this really comforting, that that's our home. He says, we'd rather be at home with the Lord. That's our home there. I think that's just a beautiful thing, that we would rather be at home with the Lord. The place that we are here is temporary. But he says something here that we spend less time considering than we likely should. In verse 9, he says, whether we are at home or away, In other words, whether we are in eternity with God or here now, he says this. We make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. How many people like that verse? That's one of those we go, ooh, let's let's figure out something else it says, because we don't want to say what it says. Because it says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It says that we will all face judgment for the things that are done in the body. Now, I will admit to you now, this is one of those texts that I was talking about that a lot of different people have a lot of different opinions about. A lot of people explain this away, or the, the, um, a really common belief by many is that Christians, because we are covered by Christ and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and that's true, amen, that Christians skirt, if you will, this judgment. And we kind of skip the judgment standing before God and go off to the reward ceremony that just gives to us reward based on the things that we do. And that's a, a popular teaching in some circles. But, but I gotta say, just a straight reading of Scripture makes that difficult to hold, in my opinion. 
I mean, just a few, for example, it says in Hebrews 9, it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Romans 14 says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of God, a passage written to Christians, not unbelievers. Matthew 16, Jesus himself says this, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory, and excuse me, with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, says this, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And Paul says here in our text, look at it closely, it says, For we must all, this is a letter written to the church, written to Christians in Corinth. He says, We must all, not just unbelievers, we all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, which means all may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So on this day, everyone will be judged for what they have done within the bodies here on earth. We will all give account for that which we are done. But what is this judgment? What are the implications of this judgment? What's, what does this judgment entail? Based on just a simple reading of Scripture from this and other passages, it looks like this judgment entails two things in particular. Number one, the result of this would be those who are or are not gaining entrance into eternal life. And number two, rewards to those who are. Now let me take these one at a time because right away when I say that first one, that causes problems for some of us. Wait a minute, you're saying that the believers are going to stand before Jesus, judgment seat of Christ, give account for what we've done, and that will determine those who enter eternal life. Jeff, that says that that sounds a lot like you're saying that it's works that gain us access into heaven. And doesn't Ephesians say different than that? You're exactly right, it does. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So yes, we are not saved by our works. I agree with that 100%. Okay, so, but then, are you saying, though, that, that our works here on earth are going to be judged as to whether we're saved or not? Yes. Well, not me so much as Jesus and the Bible. In verse 28 of John chapter 5, could you put this text up here for me? John chapter 5, 28, Jesus himself says this. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So leave that up for just a minute. Now, how can both be true? How can we be saved by faith apart from works? And then how can Jesus say that we're going to stand before God and be judged based on what we do in the body here? And the people who have done good will go to heaven and the people who have done bad will not. They will inherit uh, uh, death, will, will go to hell. How can that be saved? Here's the best way to understand this. Your works, your deeds here on earth will compose the evidence of whether or not your faith is real. Now, this is not my opinion here. This is what the scriptures say. James 2, 7 says this. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And Ephesians 2, which I quoted before about we are saved by grace through faith lest any man should boast, continues on after that in verse 10 and says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the understanding is this, for the person whose faith is genuine and real, the trajectory of their life will look, it will have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, a desire to please God. Will we fail? Of course. We will all fail. We've all failed and fallen short of the glory of God. But the person who is the believer in God, who understands the reality of it and who has been saved, their life will be marked by repentance and a continued striving towards honoring God a trajectory towards righteousness. But, but it's not those works that save them. It is the works that reveal that the faith is genuine. Really, the best Old Testament picture that I can think of that seems to illustrate this story might be helpful um, involves Solomon. You guys know the story of King Solomon? There were two women, each who had a baby. One of them died. And so one of the women, being wicked, goes to steal the other woman's baby, and this debate comes up between the two of them. You've stolen my child. No, that's your child that died. This is my child. And this argument happens. And so they both come before the king, and their cases are made. And Solomon says, just bring a sword. We'll divide the baby in half, and each of them can take half. That's the way, we'll de that's the way we're going to decide this. 
One woman's fine with it. But the other woman says, no, don't let the child be harmed. Let her have the baby. Just let her have the baby. And the king says, ah, this one is the mother of the child then because she doesn't want harm to, to be done to the child. Now think about what Solomon's looking for there. When Solomon brings that out there and forces a response from them, he's not looking for a response that will earn the baby. He's not going, the one who answers this rightly, the one who approaches this little quiz that I'm throwing out there rightly, that's the one I'm going to give the baby to. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's looking for is a response from the person that reveals that they've always been the mother. And that's the difference. Our works that we do to honor God as believers in Christ are empowered by God, by the Spirit of God. The Ephesians says, prepared by God for us to walk in, but they reveal to the world around us and to ourselves the nature of our faith. And a faith that is alone does not save. But the faith that has been truly affected by the scriptures, truly affected by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is a genuine saving faith. So on that day when our lives are taken into account, there will be a trajectory and a desire to honor God that will be common in everyone who has been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. So your works become evidence in Christ's courtroom of the genuineness of faith that Christ has given you freely. But isn't that still a little scary? I mean, to me, to think that we might one day and that we do one day stand before God and give account, I mean, that should do two things in every one of us in this room. It it should scare us because we know that we fail, right? And we know that we could never earn our way. And we know that our sin has been against a God who is loving and that we have rebelled against him. And we know our own track record. No matter what the trajectory of our life is, the sin that we have wrestled with and dealt with our entire life is ever before us. And so the thought of standing before God and having even the intentions of our heart, because how many of us have even done good works and then sometimes even struggle with what the actual motivations in our heart are in the first place? Am I doing it because I'm trying to honor God or am I doing it to make me look good or to feel good or to try to earn favor with God and even wrestling with our own heart? And I do that all the time. And so the thought of standing before God and having those things revealed and giving account for what he has invested into me and thinking of parables like Jesus' parable with the servant where he, he gives the talents to them and the one who didn't do anything with what God had given him and he buries it and then the, ser- the king comes, the master comes and he says, depart from me, you wicked servant. And that should strike fear in all of our hearts. But the other thing it should do is it should make us rejoice and be so thankful for Jesus Christ. Because when we understand, and there's no, we couldn't possibly stand on that day How could we? And then you understand that the Bible says that our sins and iniquities will be forgotten, will be removed from us. That the penalty for our sin has been covered by Jesus Christ. And that on that day, when we do stand before him, absolutely littered with failure and sin, that is the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ that envelops us and covers us. And he says, this is my son. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not depart from me, wicked servant, but well done, good and faithful servant. And when you understand the reality of the gospel, how could you possibly go, yeah, my works are what's going to save me because I couldn't possibly do enough works to make me confident on that day. But I can be confident in the work of Jesus Christ and in the truth, what we know about scripture on that day. Amen? But that does not mean that the things that we do here on earth don't matter. Scripture clearly teaches this. The things that we do matter. And the second purpose of that judgment is reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 8, He who plants and who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his work. Ephesians 6, 8, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or free. And we mentioned this last week, that there is a correlation between the things that we do here on earth and the reward and the enjoyment and the experience in eternity in heaven forever. What we do does matter. 
And that's why the scriptures are constantly compelling us. Like, don't get bogged down by the things that you see around you. Don't get so uh, overwhelmed by the treasures here and not pay forward, understanding that there is so much better on the other end of this. Don't sell yourself short. Understand what God has for you. Just this week, for example, it was end of summer, last week of summer, and so we decided to surprise our girls by taking them to the Reading water slides. They'd never been before, and we didn't tell them anything about it. They didn't even know where we were going until we were like 20 minutes away from the place. We woke them up 6.30, get up, let's go! And they're both, uh, I don't want to get up, I want to sleep, I'm tired. No, come on, we got awesome stuff. No, I want to stay in bed, I want to sleep. Now, I could have said, all right, your choice. What they didn't understand, not knowing what lay ahead of them, they were going to be sacrificing something amazing. Later in the day, they're walking around. It was an amazing day. We, we went there. As soon as we walked in the place, we like, you know how you go in and you throw all your, your towels on, on a table that's in the shade? You like lock that thing down. Mine, mine, you know, like that. But then we had told the girls, you're in charge today. Whatever you guys want to do, that's what we're going to do. And I think literally, we, we opened the place at 10 a.m. and we left at 6 p.m. when it closed. I sat down for maybe three minutes in that chair. It was a waste of time blocking that. We just went on a ride after ride after ride after ride. And I, both of my girls at different times, multiple times throughout the day said, this is the best day of my life. That's <laughs> what so they were saying. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, and they just kept going on and on. Thank you. It's the greatest day ever. Thank you. But they could have sacrificed that because they wanted to sleep in. Can I encourage you believers? Is our life characterized by nay plus ultra, nothing more beyond, or plus ultra, more beyond? That there's more beyond this. And we could be tempted so much to sacrifice and to hoard the things and cling to the things that are around us right now rather than investing into the kingdom of heaven, into an account that will never depreciate. 401k ain't going to plummet in heaven, and it will last forever. And I wonder how many times God looks at me like I did my own children and said, why, I, why are you fighting me on this? I am trying to bless you, Jeff. You don't understand what is coming. You don't have a clue how amazing it's going to be. Why are you so bogged down with this stuff that's just going to fall apart and rust and corrupt and you're going to get rid of eventually instead of investing in that which is to come? Tomorrow's Labor Day. It's the day that we set aside in our culture to honor the work, our work towards the American dream, our work towards our, our homes, our families, our great nation, and to celebrate and rest and enjoy the fruit of our labor. But this dare not this be the only thing that we're working for. What is the motto for your life with regards to this. If this is what we know, that there is an eternity waiting for us that God has prepared and it is as certain as we are right now, then that affects the way that we live. First, we need to be saved. The Bible says that to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. But the Christ part better be there first or the second part ain't true. An understanding that we must be covered by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So number one, knowing that this is true, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, if you have not recognized the atoning work of Christ on the cross, made him your Lord and Savior, repented from sin and said, I, I live for you, you are my king, then it's going to be a difficult day. And number two, it should affect the way that we live. It should affect that which we strive for. It doesn't mean that we get rid of everything we have. God is the one who gives us the gifts and blessing. And so I'm not like, if you have money, give every dime away and live in poverty. That would be irresponsible, poor steward. And no dad gives his child gifts in hopes that they get rid of it. He wants to bless us. He wants to bless you. And so if God has blessed you, then enjoy the blessings of God. But don't cling to them. Don't hoard them. And don't make your motto, this and nothing more. There's nothing beyond, and live as if this is all you have. You have no clue the mistake that you're making. And so may we all, if you'd put this text up here from 2 Peter, may we all live with this understanding. It says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of the heavens which, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting on these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reality. That Lord, as we look around us at the world, especially the current state, in an area where there is burning all around us, a world marked with violence, terror, sadness, tragedy, God, we are thankful that there is more to come. We are thankful for the promises of your scripture that we can put our faith in, that we can understand and know them to be true. That though our earthly tent is fading away, you have prepared for us a home. And we long to be home with you, Lord. I pray, God, this would be the attitude, the focus, the goal of every believer in this room. Lord, help us, Lord. Save us from ourselves, we pray, Lord. Don't let us get distracted by things here that are temporary and not lasting. But I pray, God, that by your grace, you would allow us the understanding of what is to come and that it might be the focus of our lives, determining even how we live, the work that we do. May we be those, Lord, who pay it forward, Lord, depositing into your kingdom and your eternity, living for a new heaven and a new earth. May we be like Abraham who lived as a pilgrim, waiting for a city whose maker is God. Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you give us. In this country especially, Lord, a place where we can even have a day to rest for the great things that this country has blessed us with. But Lord, may this not be all for us. May we live with that more beyond attitude. Lord, will you convict us of sin? May we be quick to repent. Lord, may we be invested in your kingdom. May we live for you and for the life beyond. And while we groan, Lord, in these bodies today, Lord, may others see the life that we live. May they understand the difference that your spirit makes in our lives. And may your kingdom grow. We pray these things in Jesus' name. We're going to close in worship. As you guys stand, I'm going to ask the huddle leaders and those that are here, if you guys would just kind of hang out in the back, there's going to be available for prayer to be able to come to them, especially if you are someone who has never put your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to go have a conversation with these people. We're not gonna shake you down with some sort of quiz or run you through some gambit of chores. We just want to introduce you to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that has saved a wretch like me. And then for the rest of us as we're in this place, let the understanding and the knowledge of the reality of heaven and of the Savior who has paid our way to get there fuel our worship this morning. In Jesus' name.